Hey, if you're new and you don't know me, I'm Dani. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'll be bringing God's word to us this morning. And we, as Tony was saying earlier, we're in Matthew's gospel. So open up your Bible there uh, at Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be reading from verse 15. And we're going through this series called Jesus, the King Who Saves. Matthew is quite a complex book, and we're in kind of the third section of it now, where people are responding to Jesus in different ways, and we'll kind of wrap up that section uh, with chapter 13, with all these parables about why people respond the way they do. Uh, and we'll get one of these responses today. But simply, this is what Matthew is about. It's about Jesus, the King who saves. And we'll see some of that again today. So Matthew chapter 12, from verse 15, and I'm going to read from the ESV, and we'll read all the way through to verse 37, and we'll pick it up next week from verse 38. Matthew chapter 12 from verse 15. It's on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, uh, but if you do have one, it'll be great as you follow along with us. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father God, there's some serious things in here, things that we don't often hear of. Satan is one of them. Jesus here acknowledges him as a strong being who's got a kingdom and influence. Uh, But we are also told about other spiritual realities. And we are certainly told that there's a way and an attitude of living that will leave us unforgiven before you one day. Not part of your kingdom and your plans and purposes for eternity. And so there's some serious things here, things that our eyes cannot see without your help. And so we pray as we open up your word now, as we wrestle with your truth, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open up our eyes, open up our hearts that they might not be hardened, make us humble and dependent like little children, and may we see the truth and respond rightly to it. This will be good for us, not now, but forever. Not just in this age, but in the age to come. So be at work now, we pray, for our good and ultimately for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Now, my, my favorite movie in high school, which was you know, just a couple of years ago, um, was Gladiator. I don't know if you remember Gladiator. It's starring Aussie uh, actor Russell Crowe. Man, I just watched it over and over again. I think it might still have been on VHS, you know, the cassettes. I'm not sure. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And I wasn't the only one, okay? Um, so uh, this film was released in 2000, and it was a box office success. Uh, it was uh, grossing $457 million worldwide, making it the second highest grossing film of that year. I hope I'm saying that right. Grossing, grossing, I don't know, whatever. It also won multiple awards, uh, and that includes five Academy Awards, you know, the awards of awards of the film industry. Now, I just wonder, why was this movie so popular and so loved? Now, for me, at least, it was because there was lots of violence and revenge. Oh, man, I loved it. Now, I'm not sure if that's why other people loved it, but those were certainly the key reasons for me. You've got Russell Crowe, who played this uh, Roman uh, general in the army, Maximus, Decimus, Meridius. I just love saying that even. And then he gets out, and he wants to avenge uh, his beloved emperor that's been killed and also his family that was killed. And the man he's looking to avenge also loves violence. Um, he is the one that killed his own father to establish his kingdom and his rule. And not only that, he continues to violently advance his kingdom and furthers it. And we might think as we look at movies like that and listen to stories like that, think, uh, you know, violence, you know, and taking stuff with violence is something people did back then, you know. But luckily these days we're very sophisticated and we're much more civilized, our society. But you just have to put a bunch of toddlers with some toys together to see that we still take things by force. And you just have to turn on the TV to see that this is what Putin is doing right now as the Russians are forcefully invading Ukraine and trying to take it, at least. Now, what amazes me about Jesus is that he is nothing like this. The revenge and the violence that I loved about Gladiator is not found in Jesus at all. And strange enough, I love Jesus more than I love 
Gladiator. And millions and millions of others do. And it wasn't just in the year 2000, but it's actually been for the last 2,000 years. Now, why is that? Well, I'm hoping after this morning's sermon, you will see. We will see who Jesus is, what, what sort of character he is. We will also see how he's trying to establish his kingdom and his reign. And we will see why people love him so much even today, even though he's not the usual violent and revengeful man. So let's look at our story. And, and I've got kind of three headings that's meant to just be uh, a kind of roadmap for us as we look at this narrative together. They're not points, but hopefully they'll help you as you take notes and follow along. And the first bit, verses 15 to 21, is all about God's servant. And right here at the beginning of our passage, we see Jesus is not the revengeful type. Now, do, do you remember where we finished off last week? Uh, look at the verse just before our passage, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. Now, now there's a normal human way of dealing with things, right? You don't like something or someone, uh, you just destroy them. You do it like Putin with violence, or you do it by character assassination, or just treating someone as if they're dead and they don't exist, or you gossip behind them and, and kind of ruin their reputation, and so on and so on. Now, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus' teaching, and now they want to get rid of him. They want to destroy him. And Jesus was aware of this, and this, you know, if I put my gladiator hat on, is the perfect time for violence and for revenge and fighting. But he doesn't do it. And we see this from verse 15, that actually he moves out of the area. He doesn't even stay. He's like just trying to get out of the region so that he doesn't need to deal with this. And a bunch of people actually follow him and he heals everyone that needed healing. And Matthew takes this opportunity to, to remind us again that this was to fulfill a promise from long ago. And he quotes that promise from Isaiah 42. And we are shown again who Jesus is, just like we were shown at his baptism. Remember, we see that Jesus is God's servant. He is uh, beloved by God. God is like deeply pleased with him. And um, God's spirit rests upon Jesus. And so Jesus is God's chosen, beloved, spirit-filled servant. And what, what is this servant going to be like according to the promise in Isaiah? Well, we see in verse 19 that he's not a fighter. At least not in the way that we come to expect or maybe desire or the way we normally fight. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't kick up a fuss. He, he doesn't oppose those who, who disagree with him. You, you know how sometimes you just have someone throwing a big... There's a big commotion that happens. You know, sometimes it's in the shops... You walk in and all of a sudden everyone's like, what is going on? Or maybe it's at a restaurant and someone is just verbally making it known that they've been treated unfairly, they don't like it, and, and, and maybe they, they demand that they be treated better and differently and so on. You know those kinds of commotions? Now Jesus doesn't do those. He won't be screaming in public because of unfair treatment. And that's why he withdraws and he moves along. And, and when his voice is heard in the streets, because it does say that his voice there is not heard, it's not saying he'll never hear him in the streets, but when his voice is heard in the streets, it's when he preaches and when he teaches, not quarreling. 
Now, the other part of Jesus, the servant's character, is found in verse 20. Read it there with me. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You know, these are pictures of the types of people that Jesus will not reject and trample on, but in fact, he accepts them and he embraces them. People who are uh, are bruised, people who are close to breaking point, people uh, who are hurting, people who are weighed down and, and weary, people who are not shining brightly with life coming out of them, but people who are barely hanging on, feeling like they're running out of oxygen. People like that are easily broken and kind of blown out by our world, but not Jesus. He is here for people like this who don't have it all together, who's struggling and who seems to be overcome by life at times. We saw last week that Jesus says he's gentle and lowly in heart and he wants to give rest to the weary. Well, this is just another way of putting it. But isn't that great? Isn't it great that that is who Jesus is and what he's like as God's servant? I reckon that's why so many people throughout the millennia have loved Jesus more than gladiators and people like the gladiator. It's because when they're down, he doesn't give up on them. When, when you're weary from the daily grind of life, Jesus is there for you. He wants to be with you. He doesn't dis- disregard you and go, oh, I don't have time for you. As an exhausted or disheartened single parent, Jesus is there for you. When you're about to break under the pressure of disease and, and death and work projects, well, Jesus is there for you. When your life is filled with problems and difficulties that, that seems to be just taking life out of you, well, Jesus is there for you. As it says in verse 21, there is hope in his name. Jesus, the chosen, beloved, spirit-filled servant of God, has come for the broken and the weary. It's good news. And, and I guess the question, as good as that is, the question is, well, how, how is he going to help me? How is he going to help us if he's not really a fighter like gladiator? You see, what I like about the gladiator is he just goes and he deals with things. Is Jesus not going to do that? How's he going to help me? It's nice that he wants to be there for me. Well, we see that in the next section. Let's keep reading. And what we get introduced to in verses 22 to, 20, uh, to 30 is, is these two kingdoms. In verse 22, a man who is blind and mute is brought to Jesus. And we are told that he was oppressed by a demon. Now imagine if we're just talking about broken and weary people. Well, this guy would probably be a great example, don't you think? So imagine how broken and weary he would have felt. Imagine hearing people talk about a beautiful sunset. Hey, guys, guys, quick, look over there. But you can't look. Imagine hearing a great song that you love and you just want to burst out singing. But you can't do it. Or imagine maybe having a child that you cannot see. You don't know how they look. You can't even talk to them. That's what this person would have been. He would have been so tired of not being able to function fully. But Jesus, as God's servant, has come for people like this. And so he heals him so that he can see and he can speak. Man, I wonder, I would love to know what he felt like. I mean, we don't hear from him. I reckon he just went, just ran off, tried to see everything he wanted to see and speak to everyone he could speak. 
And would you believe it? The ordinary people who are following Jesus and saw this miracle, they actually respond rightly to Jesus. Look there at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? What, well, you see, what Matthew tells us from Isaiah, and these people didn't have this bit, they actually see, or at least it seems like they're open to exploring it. It's, it's like they're connecting the dots, if you like. They remember the servant of God promised that Isaiah was going to, to give sight to the blind, that he was going to give speech to the mute, that he's going to put a spring in the step of the lame, and, and he was going to uh, give strength to the weak. And as they look at what Jesus is doing, they think, could this be the son of David? Could this be God's spirit-filled servant that's about to bring in his kingdom? They're seeing things very clearly, actually, and these are just ordinary people like you and me. And they're looking at things with the right questions with humility. But quickly we've got the Pharisees coming in because it seems every time in Matthew when, when Jesus fulfills something and we see that he is, is fulfilling promises, the Pharisees come in and there's opposition. And so they, the wise and learned ones, you know, they supposedly correct people. Look at what they say in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, what the Pharisees says here are just ridiculous. And Jesus will point it out later, and I'll show you. You know, Jesus does not want people in Satan's grip, but he wants to free them from his deception and his destruction. He is totally against Satan's cunning and cutting work. And so he cast out this demon that, that was oppressing this man. And how do the Pharisees explain it? Well, essentially, they're saying, Jesus, you're on Satan's side. And you think, what? Are we, are we watching the same thing? Now, listen carefully, friends, because you will come across Pharisees in your life. They're, they're not under their title, but they will act like the Pharisees. Pharisees know their Bibles really well. They can quote from it even, but they don't understand it rightly. And they often use it wrongly, guilting people, oppressing people with the Bible, doing the very thing that God's Word is not meant to be doing. On the surface, they live godly lives. Everyone look at them as, as these examples. But in their hearts, they're self-righteous. They're filled with pride. Jesus says, hey, on the outside, they're, they're whitewashed tombs. They're very clean, but on the inside, they're filled with dead bones. They're not for Jesus, but against him, even if they're part of the church, even if they're in leadership. Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He tells them they're evil in verse 34. He's saying, you're children of the serpent. You know the one that deceived Adam and Eve right at the beginning? He says it even clearer in John 8:44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. God is not your father, he says to the Pharisees. The devil is. You're not on God's side, even though everyone seems to think so. You're on Satan's side, Jesus says to the Pharisees. The point is, the Pharisees and people like them are actually on Satan's side, according to Jesus. That's the very thing that they accuse Jesus of, which is strange. Right after he cast out a demon, 
You see, Pharisees, and listen very carefully, they love accusing others of the very thing that they are guilty of doing. You can sit down, I'll give you some examples. You can sit down with a husband and show him how his wife has no voice in the marriage because of his controlling attitude. You can show him, hey, look at how Jesus wants you to love your wife so that there's freedom and there's relationship and beautiful things happening. And later you'll get an email accusing you of being controlling and that, the, that this person had no voice in the meeting. And you think, well, hold on, that's, that's what I was trying to show you. Now I'm being attacked by that. Or you sit with someone that's living an ungodly life and, and you show them from the Bible, hey, this, this is not how Jesus would want you to live. This is how he would like you to live. And as you do that over time and you pray for them, this person says, no, I don't want to listen to that. I understand the, better, the Bible better than you. Next minute, you get accused of being a good bloke, but you know, if, if someone raises something with you, you don't listen. And you think, well, oh, that's, that's what was happening with you. And now I'm, hold on, what's going on? Or here's another one. You sit down with someone who's, who's an abuser, abusive husband, and after their wife, you know, has finally built up the courage to come and speak to you, you talk to them. You say, look, Jesus doesn't want you to be like this. He wants you to be gentle and patient um, and to, to be self-controlled. And you know what you're going to be accused of? You're going to be accused of, of being dangerous. Oh, when I met up with you, I felt so unsafe. You're dangerous. You're an abuser. You think, what? How has this happened? You see, living with Pharisees can drive you nuts. What you feel is happening and you raise with them is often what then you are accused of doing. And because they're always right, hey, you're the one that's wrong. And they don't need to do any work. You're the one that needs to do the work. You need fixing. Don't try and tell me that I'm doing something wrong. You're actually the, the problem. And because of this, uh, you know, and the lies that they tell you, it goes against the truth and what you're actually feeling. And so you get to the point where you, where you feel like you're mad. You, you feel like, uh, is there something wrong with me? Because I feel this, and, and the Bible seems to say this, but every time I speak to him or to her, I leave going what has just happened? I'm so confused. If this is what you're experiencing, please come and talk to us. Or if this is what you hear a friend talk, how you hear a friend talk about their experience, then, then maybe now you know what's actually going on. That they're living and in a relationship with a Pharisee. This is what Pharisee-like people do. And it's sickening. And it's sinful. And it's sad. How do we even have things like this happen? <laughs> that was one of my questions. And Jesus shares here some truths with us that, that you won't hear from our world, uh, but it's key to the Christian worldview. Jesus says, firstly, that Satan is real, and he has a kingdom. Jesus says that Satan is strong. He, he has helpers, and he has influence in this world. In fact, other places in the Bible, um, Satan is called the God or the ruler of this world. And Jesus shares these truths to show uh, the context. He says he's trying to show how illogical the Pharisees' claims of him are. You see, in verse 26, he's saying, If, if, if I cast out demons by Satan, well then, uh, fight, Satan is fighting against himself. So how is his kingdom going to stand? He's busy destroying himself. I mean, I'm, 
You know, Satan is, is not silly. He's not stupid. He's crafty. I don't think he'd be doing that. One reason Jesus gives for why the, the, the Pharisees have it wrong. And then in verse 27, we get another reason. It's, it's a bit more tricky to understand. Uh, but this is essentially what Jesus is asking them. He says, if, if I cast out demons by Satan, by whom are your followers casting them out? And of course, the, the self-righteous Pharisees are going to say, oh, oh, by God, of course, you know, we're not, we're not like you. And so the, the, the silent question that Jesus leaves them with is to say, oh, okay, so, so if I'm casting out demons by Satan and your people are doing it by God... Well, why am I having to heal people that your people can't heal? Are you, are you saying that Satan is stronger than God? And he leaves them with that and he says, your, let your followers be the judge of that question. Um, and so Jesus is pointing out again, that is an illogical answer. God is so much stronger than Satan. It doesn't make sense. And so what it leaves us with is only one logical conclusion to Jesus' work, and he gives it to us in verse 28. Look there at verse 28. Jesus says, But if by the Spirit of God, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Jesus, the Spirit-filled servant of God, the kingdom of God has come upon us. It's huge. No wonder history evolves around this man's arrival. What the ordinary folk suspected when they, when they asked, can this be the son of David, Jesus now confirms. And, and I guess the question is this, at least in my mind, Jesus, well, well if you're so powerful, if you're stronger than Satan, if, if your kingdom is so much better for us and it's good, well, why don't, you just, why don't you just bring it in right now? And he gives us the answer for that in verse 29. Look there at verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus gives us his game plan here. Jesus' tactics to bring about his kingdom is not to destroy Satan and everyone in his kingdom, at least not for now. Instead, Jesus binds Satan first, and then he plunders his kingdom. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus does this because he loves the people that Satan has taken captive. The people that he has deceived and that he is busy destroying. You see, when Jesus looks at Satan's kingdom, he doesn't see enemies to destroy, but people to be rescued. And so Jesus comes to earth behind enemy lines, if you like. He's on enemy territory and he's plundering. Satan's kingdom by saving people. <laughs> I was just thinking, no wonder I love this guy so much. And many others do too. He does fight for us. Not in the way that maybe we expect, but he does. He does in the way that's best for us. Jesus was fighting for us on the cross. You see, that's where he tied Satan's hands behind his back. You know, you know Satan has nothing to offer anyone. Have you ever had, heard Satan say, hey, I can give you this? All he has is deception and lies and accusations to try and turn us from God, to put us in the same place where he's at. And Jesus goes to the cross and he ties 
his hands behind his back. If you like, if you imagine a gun, you know, this is a weapon that Satan has, uh, that Satan has, um, you know, God just, Jesus just dismantles it. Have you seen army people do that? They just grab a gun and they just, and then it fills in, fills in pieces. The ammunition's out. It's useless now. That's what Jesus does with Satan at the cross. And this is how he does it. You see, Satan says to people, hey, you're such a sinner. God is going to punish you so badly. Come to me instead. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's okay. I have taken your punishment in your place. The punishment that your sins deserve. I took it upon myself and I paid for it when I died on the cross. Another one of Satan's um, tactics is he said, death is coming. He uses death a lot. Hey, death is coming and it's so horrible. You know, when you die, life is over. And you'll never be happy again. So, so you know what you need to do? You need to live the best life you can right now. Don't listen to anyone. Just do whatever makes you happy. Just live life to the full. Because you know what? When you die, you can't be happy anymore. And so live your best life now. Because the happiness will be impossible soon. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. no. I've defeated death in my resurrection. And you can live forever with me. Happiness is not uh, limited to this life. In fact, you can be happier now than, than you can ever imagine, and it can last forever. That's what Jesus says, tying Satan's hands behind his back again. Satan says, here's the last one, um, even though there's many more. Satan says, hey, God doesn't love you. God doesn't love you. Hey, why would you want to be part of someone's kingdom if they don't love you? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That is just an outright lie. Look at the cross. Look at my death on the cross. Look what I've done for you and everything I've won for you. And I'm going to come back. Does it look like I don't love you? You see, this is just a plain lie. Right at this very moment, Jesus could say, I haven't brought in my kingdom fully because I love you. I could have brought the kingdom in and none of you would have been saved but I've been waiting patiently because I love you and he loves me and he loves others. That's why he hasn't brought about his kingdom yet. Do you see, friends, how Jesus has tied up Satan so he can save you and save me and save others? Do you see how gracious and how patient he is because he wants many more to come to a knowledge of the truth, to to turn to him and find forgiveness and life and be saved by faith? What a good and gracious God we have. Satan cannot hurt us. And not only that, his kingdom is open for us to plunder it. And I wonder if you have a desire to plunder Satan's kingdom. Or are you happy that you're saved and you know you just, you just want life to go on calmly, just plodding along, luckily I'm saved. If that's you, I wonder if you see the world and those around you the way Jesus does. He says there in verse 30, I don't know if this stood out to you like it did to me. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me or to me scatters. You see, for Jesus, you're either with him or you're against him. There's no neutral ground. Is that how we see people? Or, or do we only see kind of staunch atheists as people that are against Jesus? But you know, if, if my neighbor's just generally a good bloke and he's not religious at all, you know, so he, he's a nice guy. 
He's okay. No. He's on a collision course with Jesus unless we can get him out from behind enemy lines. He's deceived or she is deceived. They've been lied to and they will be destroyed inevitably unless they get the truth of the good news of Jesus to them. And you and I are often the only people that can give it to them. So surely if we, if we have this biblical view, this view that Jesus has, our, our heart for the lost surely must go through the roof. There are only two kingdoms. And there's only one choice. And so let's help people say yes to Jesus. Now, as we think of ourselves on mission with Jesus, on enemy territory here on a planet, desperately getting people to trust in the good news of Jesus and to join God's kingdom, it can be overwhelming, can't it? You know, if we know that if we can't get people gathered to Jesus, they are still under Satan's rule. They are still deceived. They're in captivity. And they will slowly destroy themselves and others. And ultimately, they will experience destruction forever with Satan when Jesus judges them. So how do we not let the weight of that just crush us and overwhelm us and burden us that it's up to me to get them out? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in verse 31 to 37, and the answer is God's Spirit. We're not in this alone. You see, these verses are all about God's Spirit and His work in saving people and radically changing them. Without the work of the Spirit, no one can experience or enter God's kingdom. That's essentially what Jesus says in verses 31 to 32. Verses that are often very misunderstood. Look at, look at them with me, verses 31 to 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, uh, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come. So this is serious, isn't it? Now this is not about a single action or a single word that you might speak against the Spirit and then you're doomed and you can never be forgiven again. No. Neither is it uh, when you say no to the leading of God's Spirit. In a moment maybe when the Spirit is kind of leading you to to share the good news of Jesus with someone, or you hear someone say something and you feel, man, I need to stand up for Jesus in this moment. And often when those things happen, we we don't listen and we just withdraw. Um, And we regret it later on. But doing that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What that is called, actually, is grieving the Holy Spirit, as we see in Ephesians 4.30. And it's only people who actually are filled with God's Spirit that can do that. Whereas those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are never filled with God's Spirit in the first place because they say no to Him. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's actually very simple. All we have to do is look at what the Pharisees did to Jesus that that made Him warn us about this. And there are three things that they did that make up blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, They're very short. Firstly, they witnessed Jesus powerfully working 
doing things that, 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 that was promised in the prophets would be done by God's chosen and spirit-filled servant. They witnessed it. Secondly, they rejected those works as done by God through his spirit. And in fact, they went even further and said that they were Satan's work. They demonized Jesus. And thirdly, they planned and plotted to destroy Jesus. So there's an active and willful opposition to Jesus and his mission. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's worth saying it's not a single action that you do and then you're left unforgiven forever. But it's an attitude that you have at your core. And if you continue in it until you die, you will not stand forgiven before God one day. Forgiveness can only be found in Jesus and having been born again through the Spirit and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. But you know what? Anyone who has this attitude and turns to Jesus and allows him to work in them by the Spirit and and works with him will be forgiven. Jesus warns the Pharisees in our passage against the blasphemy of the Spirit, and, and we should take it seriously. But at the same time, we know that there was another Pharisee. You know that other Pharisee called Saul? Um, He saw Jesus. He witnessed his works. Uh, He did not believe that was God's spirit working through Jesus. And he was actively opposed to Jesus' mission by killing Christians and imprisoning others. And you know what? Today, that Pharisee is standing before God, completely forgiven as the Apostle Paul. And I love how Jesus changed Uh, Paul's name. I love how he changed his name from Saul to Paul to show that he's a brand new person. He's been radically changed by Jesus and the work of the Spirit. And that's the same radical change that our passage finishes off with in verses 33 to 36. You see, if we see the radical changes in these verses in our lives and the lives of others, we can be assured that we have not blasphemed the Spirit and we will be forgiven and we are forgiven and citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Here's one of the ones. So if we have been changed to our core so that we bear good fruit, like a, like a good tree or a healthy tree bears healthy fruit, well, that's one of them. If, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do you have healthy character that people look to and say, oh, that's good. I want to be like that guy. Whether they're in the church or not, people looking at your fruit and say, I want to be like that. I I love tasting that. Also, when the Spirit transforms us, we speak from a new heart. We all of a sudden speak kindly and gently. We, we build people up with our words and we, we look to encourage people and be positive. We're not, we're not trying to break people down. We, we love to speak the truth. We love the truth about Jesus and it's on our lips and, and we do not like lies. Lies don't come over our lips. Nor does gossip or destructive and degrading talk. And the third thing Another way we know the Spirit has been at work in us is if our hearts are like good treasures. 
You know why they are like that? It's because the Spirit has applied the wonderful gospel of Jesus, the riches of the gospel to us, and we know how rich and blessed and privileged we are. We have in abundance as followers of Jesus. And so Christians are generous and giving people as if they've got this treasure inside of them. They're generous with their time, with the way they speak, with their finances, even with their thing. Hey, you need a car? Just take mine. Hey, come and live in our house. They're just so generous. And they, they are trying to richly bless others because they have been richly blessed by Jesus. At every opportunity before them, they try and do that. Now let's finish like this. Two kingdoms have been put before us today. And you've got one choice to make. Will you come to God's servant, Jesus, and be open to be radically transformed by the work of God's Spirit? Will you, as as part of God's kingdom, devote your life to live in enemy territory here on earth so that Jesus can use you and through you plunder Satan's kingdom, saving people from his grip and from destruction? Will you hope? in the justice that Jesus has secured by his victory on the cross and hold that hope out to others who desperately need it. Will you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have not brought in your kingdom in fully right now because you know we were going to sit here You know that everyone in this room was going to be here and you wanted all of us to hear these words from your word. And we thank you for that. Thank you for graciously and patiently bearing with us and and lots of people over the centuries and particularly a lot of evil and a lot of sin and hate against you because you have set your hearts upon us to save us. Thank you so much. You are so gracious and you're so good. Thank you for fighting for us and still fighting for us today. Not in a way that the world does, but in a much better, much powerful way as you plunder Satan and his kingdom. Lord, please give us hearts like yours, eyes to see the way you see and radically change us by the work of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, please shape this church. Shape me, shape each and every one of us that we might be like Jesus, that we might have a love for the lost and see true realities in us, in others, and around us, Lord. Please, may you use this and use us to greatly glorify you in one, one day. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus, your chosen, beloved, and spirit-filled servant in whom we 